On this week's edition of New York Now, a turbulent economy has economic forecasters nervous. We'll check in on New York's finances. Then, reporter Alexis Young does a deep dive on New York's overdose crisis and what's being done about it. And later, how can New York address its housing crisis? We'll talk about it. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. I'm sure you're all tired of hearing about politics and last week's elections by now, so we're going to leave all that behind this week and look ahead. It's a few weeks late, but the Hochul administration has released an update to the state's finances. And this update is really important. For one, we're about halfway through New York's fiscal year. But for two, Governor Hochul is actively preparing her own plan for next year's budget. And this update will likely influence that. So with me here in studio to get more into it is Patrick Orecki from the Citizens Budget Commission. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So this was, uh, for people who don't know, the state budget passes ideally by the end of March. The mm -hmm. fiscal year starts April 1st. So we're about halfway through the fiscal year right now. What were the takeaways from this report? Yeah, what we saw in this, this quarterly update was basically good to neutral news. Um, there was a little bit more money coming in than was expected a couple months ago, and a little less uh, to pay out because of uh, some extra federal money that came through in the last quarter. So um, kind of both good news on, on both sides of the ledger. Do we know why there's more, coming, more money coming in? Is this just higher tax receipts than we were expecting? Yeah, this is, this is just higher tax receipts based on actual receipts from July through October, basically. Um, so it does help a little bit. There are still kind of longer-term problems. In July, tax receipts came down a lot over a multi-year period. This is good news in one year alone. Okay, so is the trend that we're seeing, is it trending up, or is this more of like a fluke that you see? Yeah, it, it's... Um, it's basically temporary, I would, is how I would describe it. It's, it's one year. It's based on what we're actually seeing. We'll see. There will be more adjustments that will come in January and how we close out the fiscal year in March. But um, I think everyone was pleasantly surprised probably by what was included in this financial plan update. What does it mean in the short term? I, I mean, you know, a, a couple billion dollars that we weren't expecting is a lot of money. But in the context of the state budget, it's not necessarily a lot of money. So if I'm the Hochul administration putting together a budget right now or whatever, what does this mean for my planning? Does it really make that big of a difference? It doesn't change the out-year stories that much. I mean, you do have a little bit of extra cash on hand to, to cover some future uh, expenses if, if that's what they decide to do. But the out-year story is, is unchanged from what we saw over the summer, which is the kind of re-emergence of multi-year, multi-billion dollar budget gaps on the horizon. And for I know a few months ago, the state controller was warning of a, uh, I think it was $310 million deficit, or maybe it was Division of Budget that was warning of it. Um, so do we see a change in that in this report going into her budget? Yeah, nothing in the current year. We're still balanced, which is good okay. news. So the plan is is still set to close out with, with zero or even a little bit of a surplus to finish the year. Um, what we're looking at now is both not only those budget gaps on the horizon, but 
eventually in a couple of years time one time federal aid will go away temporary tax increases will sunset at some point and there's still a lot of kind of concern and risk about the economy more broadly so even under the status quo we have budget gaps what if there is a, a recession or some other disruption yeah what does this mean for the out years I guess that would be the long term that we would talk about so it's looking okay going to this next fiscal year but mm -hmm. in the next couple of years what are we trending towards in terms of um, I know that there are projections of a deficit uh, some not great financial news but what are we looking at yeah it's, it's really two things in the longer term first of all is those budget gaps uh, up to six billion dollars in four years time that'll have to be dealt with over time the other is the expiration of non-recurring resources whether it's federal mm -hmm. aid or or tax increases so That'll open up some really big needs to close the gap down the line. I think the good news is what the state did really well around this time last year and in last year's budget was set aside a lot more in rainy day savings than we had done in the past. So that's money that you can't touch unless there's a, a disruption or a recession. Um, but the state is much better positioned to deal with that type of situation if we keep saving. Can you help me understand how we get from um, being in an okay position right now to having that, that maybe $6 billion deficit in four years? What, what would happen to make that happen? Yeah, it's really about kind of changing what was expected for growth over time. So if you expect a, a fully balanced financial plan over five years like we had in April, and then you see a kind of overall aggregate decreasing in the rate of growth uh, in personal income, which is our, our biggest tax sources on personal income. If you lower that trajectory line, uh, over time, the gap gets wider and wider in the out years. So that's kind of what we're seeing, why the gaps are as big as $6 billion in 2027. So when we're looking at a possible recession, you'd mentioned we put some rainy day funds in. Are we in a good place if that ends up, if we do actually enter a recession? I think the, the answer there is a little bittersweet. We are in a much better position than we used to be. We used to only have about two and a half billion dollars in the real rainy day fund lockbox. Uh, between all sources of reserves, the plan is to get up to about 19 billion. So mm. far, far better than we had. The reality is a typical recession would probably hit us for about $40 billion. So you're still dealing with less than half of, of what might be needed. It's a lot of money, and uh, we don't have it, unfortunately. Right. Um, we're out of time. Great stuff. Patrick Orecki from the Citizens Budget Commission. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break from the news of the week now and move on to the state's overdose crisis. Before the pandemic, New York was making some good progress on reducing the number of overdose deaths each year. And that's important because before that, the state's overdose crisis had been getting worse, fueled mostly by opioids and heroin. And then things changed again when COVID hit. Overdose deaths have only gone up since then. So new strategies to help people struggling with substance use are now in the spotlight. Alexis Young reports. New York's opioid crisis has gotten worse over the past few years. The state saw a 50% spike in the number of deaths from opioids in 2020, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And last year, the number was even higher, with about 4,500 deaths statewide. But before 2020, the numbers were actually going down. So the conversation on how to address the crisis has now changed with a focus on harm reduction. That's when the goal is to keep people alive while they battle an addiction. Dr. Chinazo Cunningham is the commissioner of the State Office of Addiction and Substance Abuse Services. 
harm reduction is not new. Um, harm reduction is really you know, a, an approach and a set of principles um, and practical strategies that really focus on reducing harms associated with substance use. And harm reduction was really born out of HIV, um, but I think in terms of really focusing on drug use, there's been m more recently uh, a willingness to embrace harm reduction. And harm reduction comes in a lot of different forms. We find one here at Project SafePoint, run by Catholic Charities Care Coordination Services in the Capital Region. It's a nonprofit that provides harm reduction services like a clean syringe exchange for people who use. They also offer training for what to do when an overdose happens, like using naloxone or Narcan to save someone's life. Candace Ellis, the executive director, said that's to meet people where they are in their recovery instead of a more traditional model. I think some people are familiar with more like a more medical model. So you go in, someone assesses you, gives you a diagnosis potentially, and says, here is your treatment plan. And this is what you need to do uh, to manage that particular condition or whatever that might look like. Here, it's really um, someone might come in, say, for looking for safer injection supplies or to get some Narcan. And we'll just have a conversation. You know, is this all you need? Is there anything else that we can help you with today? Ellis and others at Project SafePoint want to change the public's view of addiction and substance use. That way, they say people will be more willing to ask for help when they need it. That could also make it easier, they say, to connect people with services like Project SafePoint's LEAD program. That program partners with law enforcement, so when they come across someone who's struggling with substance use, they can refer them to community resources like Project SafePoint. Terra Madrid is a LEAD or L-E-A-D case manager. It stands for Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. So oftentimes we are getting referrals from APD Albany Police Department and what they're doing is at the point of contact of a possible crime being committed, they send them our way and say, hey, this person seems like they might need some services in the community. And so when they come to us, what we do is we go over a brief intake with them, generally get an idea of like, where are you at in your life and your needs and what is it that you wanna work on right now? So then we set up a service plan with them. And that plan, will be different for everyone, depending on their situation. For some people, it can really help to work with someone who's been through it. That's where Heather Charbonneau comes in. She's a state-certified recovery peer advocate, which is someone who struggled with substance use in the past and can share how they got through it. Being a peer, you, you've been through it. You also know the struggles and the barriers within the system and navigating it and the lack of support. And one thing I can say about harm reduction, risk reduction, recovery, or just a human, period, connection. Connection is always the start of a relationship. And most times I can't tell you how many people were just grateful that I was able to talk to them and let them be them without saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. It's all a part of Project SafePoint's big message, that people struggling with addiction need help, not punishment. But it's also about recognizing when someone needs more help than Project SafePoint can give them. Groups like Project SafePoint can sometimes serve as a stepping stone. For some, it's about getting into a treatment program, either through a doctor or a licensed facility. For Jake, who didn't give his last name, that was Dynamite Youth Center, which has facilities in Brooklyn and the Hudson Valley. 
I was in a school shooting in 2018. Um, yeah, uh, heroin uh, threw my life away. Um, I, had a, I had the chance of playing baseball at a very high level. Um, I threw it away. Um, I got arrested. I was facing prison time at 16 years old. And um, after I got out, like, heroin, heroin helped me cope with everything. Jake was speaking at a meeting of the state's Opioid Settlement Fund Advisory Board. That board was set up this year by state law, after opioid companies agreed to pay the state more than a billion dollars. That was to settle a lawsuit over their role in the opioid crisis. And now, the advisory board will decide where that money goes. That's happening over the next few years. State Senator Gustavo Rivera is a Democrat who chairs the Health Committee, and he also sponsored the bill that created the advisory board. As we have been getting, uh, you know, um, getting some of these companies to pony up uh, as we reach settlements, then we just want to make sure that that money goes towards actually fixing the harm and repairing the harm that has been caused by the, by, by overdoses and, and by the deaths or, or, or by the harm that has been caused just period by this, by this opioid crisis. Um, with the involvement of the board, you saw the board, right? The involvement of the board, like the board has to vote on it uh, to, rec- to make recommendations uh, on how that money is going to be used. So it is around recovery, um, you know, uh, harm reduction um, and, uh, and treatment. And we want to make sure that that is what the money is used for. The board started its work in June and has held regular meetings since then. And while that money is expected to make a real difference in curbing the opioid crisis, other strategies for harm reduction are now emerging in New York City as well. Senate Bill S-603, or Assembly Bill A-224, advocates for safe consumption services at sites like On Point NYC. Both their East Harlem and Washington Heights locations offers folks who use substances a medically safe place to consume their dose and receive holistic health care services that don't demonize their clients but keeps them alive. So we don't provide any drugs, we just provide clean materials for people to consume drugs with. Whatever they deem as one dose, we allow them to do. So if that's a, a time in the smoking room and then an injection time, we allow that to happen, right? We just want to make sure everybody does their dose and then gets going. Ray Samuelson is the overdose prevention specialist or responsible person in charge at On Point's East Harlem location, which opened last year, along with On Point's other facility in Washington Heights. They were actually the first two overdose prevention centers to open in the country. The primary draw here is that it's a place for people to use drugs with medical help on standby. That's Samuelson, who's ready with an overdose reversal drug in case it's needed. That way, users can stay alive as they continue their battle with addiction. We can slowly bring the Narcan up. 0.4 milligrams at a time to eventually bring somebody out of overdose. We don't need to bring them out as quick as we can. Um, Yeah, and so that's really a unique thing to this program, a unique thing about overdose prevention centers. We're able to respond so quickly that an overdose in here isn't what an overdose out in the street might look like. It's a completely different being. Having a combination of medical equipment on hand and a supply of Narcan has helped on point save countless lives, according to officials there. And they also offer other harm reduction services as well. 
Um, so we have fentanyl test strips on site if people want to test their drugs for fentanyl. Uh, the reality is every bag of heroin we've tested since 2017 has fentanyl. So it's really our fentanyl test strips are not super helpful for our people using heroin, using opiates. What they're really great for is our people who aren't using opiates, who are using stimulants, uppers, cocaine, methamphetamine, crack, right? On-point facilities include places for people to shower, do their laundry, get food, and see a health professional. Susan Spratt manages clinical services there. We do a lot of what we call bridge care. So it's, it's primary care stuff, um, but for our folks who've had negative experiences in traditional healthcare settings, we're, we're just sort of trying to bridge care so that we can then connect them um, to primary care clinics that are gonna treat them well. They even have guided meditation and auricular acupuncture which is acupuncture that's done in the ears um, for detox therapy. When people are detoxing off of substances, it specifically was developed to support people getting off of opiates um, and managing their withdrawal symptoms. But it also helps with stress relief and anxiety. Um, and so it's something that you don't have to be a drug user to benefit from. Kyla, who didn't give her last name, is a holistic health specialist with OnPoint. It's an important part of what they do there, she says, because drug use and trauma are often connected. So treating both can have a lasting effect. Right? We are dealing with a lot of communities that have severe mass incarceration trauma, uh, have been victimized by the war on drugs and by the very racist and classes were on drugs, right? So we see our people and we know that we are worthy of more. And so this is a way of healing so that we actually have hope. Like Project Safe Point in the capital region, harm reduction strategies are key here at On Point, where the goal is to help people survive and find treatment should they want it. It's also where we find Will. He uses On Point to make sure I get me clean supplies for when I go home, clean syringes, needles. Um, I just use them for the basic necessities, but overall it's a wonderful program, a wonderful facility. And Will's no stranger to treatment, but... I wasn't there willingly, I was, you know, I was court mandated, so it wasn't no enthusiasm to get sober. So it was like once I left the program, I was, reservation was right there. Not everyone supports facilities like OnPoint. Opponents see them as places where addiction is encouraged and where users are enabled. Will said he sees where they're coming from, but it's not like that. I can see the double-edged sword of the conversation, but you know the community needs to understand if you if they have a safe consumption site, you don't have to come out your apartment and see if you know a user in the staircase chewing up. You don't have to you know see users on the back of your building or, you know, in the doorways and stuff like that. This is a lot better. It takes the, the drugs off the streets, out the civilian's face. On Point's two locations are still the only overdose prevention centers in the state. That could change if Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal's and Senate Health Chair Rivera's bill passes. It would allow overdose prevention centers to be set up around the state. So far, the bill hasn't had enough support to pass. In Harlem and the Capital Region, for New York Now, Alexis Young. And we'll put some resources up on our website for those struggling with substance use. As always, that's at nynow.org.
But moving on now to another pressing issue in New York. It's no secret that there is a housing crisis in New York, and the problem is really twofold. For one, there's not enough housing to meet the demand. But for two, the housing that is available is getting more expensive. You would need to earn $110,000 a year to afford the median asking rent in New York City. That's according to a survey from the city's housing agency. So there is a gap here. And for more on that, I spoke with James Lloyd from the New York State Association for Affordable Housing. James, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we know that New York has a housing crisis. It's had a housing crisis for quite some time now. How bad is the housing crisis in New York? How would you describe it? Oh, I mean, it is, it's the worst it's ever been. Uh, you know, the, the median renter income in New York City is $50,000. Uh, meanwhile, you'd have to be able to afford, you'd have to have around $110,000 to afford the average available apartment, which is rents for 2,800 bucks a month. Um, you know, there's almost there's essentially no uh, rental stock available um, at the lowest levels of income for what people can afford. So, you know, it's really dire. And the metro area needs 345,000 units of new housing right now. Uh, so there's a major shortage. So is that the problem that exists? Some people, I think, see this as just a cost problem, as in the rent is too high. Is it more that the rent is too high or do we just not have enough units and homes to house people? Well, the rent is too high because there are not enough units. I mean, there's a huge supply issue, and that lack of supply is what has driven up rents to these degrees. I mean, it's a, a classic microeconomics problem. Is it an affordable housing problem in particular, or is it a housing problem in general? I, I think it would make more sense if it's an affordable housing problem because people can't afford the rent, but you tell me. It's both. I mean, yes, we need a lot more affordable housing, absolutely. Um, but that being said, you know, we lack uh, adequate housing across all income levels. And when you don't have adequate housing at all income levels, it hits the poorest first. So New York City has the most homeless per capita in America. And the vast majority of, vast majority of those are economically homeless. And that's due to the lack of overall housing availability. Now, has the homelessness problem gotten worse as well as the housing problem has gotten worse? I guess they're both the same problem, but I'm, I'm wondering, we talk about homelessness in different contexts than I think affordable housing a lot of the time. And I know that you're here obviously representing affordable housing, so it's okay if you can't answer it, but do we see homelessness on the rise too, especially in New York City? Yes, no, it's at, it's at a peak as well, um, at partly due to economics and due to the overall housing crisis. Uh, obviously, we've seen the recent migrant crisis as well from the southwest border. Um, so all those numbers add up and we're at peak uh, populations and shelters as we speak. So what do we do about it? I mean, this is a really complicated problem in terms of housing. It's, it's, I mean, it's not easy to say, but if we're just saying build more units, that sounds easy, but I think it's easier said than done. So what do you see as the first steps that um, a governor, Kathy Hochul, could take maybe in the next year to get us on the right track to fixing this crisis? Absolutely. And, and look, I think this, this, uh, this answer has two parts, right? I mean, for one, you know, you, you're, you're talking about homeless and I really, you know, to speak directly to that, in the, what houses homeless is typically supportive housing, project-based Section 8. So obviously we need to continue robust development of those types of housing. 
Um, but then, of course, to address the overall housing shortage, um, we need, you know, aggressive action from the governor. And congratulations to her, the you know, state's first woman governor to be elected. And, and we were very happy to see that she campaigned on housing. So she stated that, you know, she aims to see a half a million to a million units of new housing developed in the state over the next decade. Um, but to be clear, you know, we need a, a lot of state action to, to get this done. Uh, we just generally the, the problem is extremely restrictive uh, development regulations. So zoning, subdivision regulations and this sort of thing. Um, and there's just not many places to build housing, affordable or market rate. And, you know, really what we need is what we call as of right. So as of right is um, when you can go through the process and build housing and just apply for permits without having to get something like a zoning change. So we really need that option to be able to develop more housing uh, at any sort of scale. If you don't give that option, is the zoning, is that a New York City specific uh, uh, option? Is that, would that be up to the city to change the zoning or is there something at the state level that could happen as well to make this easier? Yes, I mean, every, uh, every city, town, village that has, that has zoning, which is the vast majority of them, could choose to to liberalize their zoning and to make it easier to build. And you see um, sort of discussions in the city about doing that. Uh, for instance, zoning for housing opportunity is Mayor Adams' initiative uh, to um, encourage more affordable housing in the city. So, you know, uh, Senator May has proposed a, um, a state zoning board of appeals process, similar to the Massachusetts 40B statute. It's getting pretty obscure, I know with this, but <laughs> that would sort of allow people to propose a project regardless of local zoning if it were uh, partially affordable and have sort of different paths. We're also looking for an, a statewide affordable housing needs study that can point to each town or in New York City community district and say, this area needs X number of affordable units and X number of market rate units to meet the local housing need. All right, well, we will see what happens next year in Albany. James Lloyd from the New York State Association for Affordable Housing, thank you so much. Absolutely. And Governor Hochul is scheduled to release her plan for the state budget in January with a final spending plan due in March. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.